to the audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's Speakeasy chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on The Cutting Wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. I have to apologize for a slight problem with this week's episode. Everything sounded fine while I was recording, but for some reason, Skype decided to put a little staticky interference of some sort on my end of the audio, and I wasn't aware of it until we were done and I listened back. I cleaned it up as best I could, but there are still little blips in my part of the conversation. If you don't think that'll be too distracting, come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is heading up the new audiobook division at a publishing company that's been around in one form or another for almost 200 years, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Tommy Heron, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Happy to be here. I'm really glad you could make it. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you reached out uh, and, and let me know about this new division. Uh, always interested to talk to people at publishing companies in various different capacities. So, uh, so this is fantastic getting to talk to somebody who's at the helm. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a blast. This is a new uh, a new role for me. I've only been here since February, and mm-hmm. I came on to start the division here as HMH Audio, um, and it's been a wonderful place to uh, to sort of cut my teeth in this administrative role. Well, that's fantastic. I'm uh, I'm happy to be having drinks with you here in the speakeasy. So uh, so since we are in a speakeasy, what are you drinking tonight? I I have to admit this evening I am I am drinking tea. Uh, because I have a one and a half year old that I have to keep up with. Um, but, <laughs> that's a, that's uh, a great goes, reason. Yeah. Once he goes to bed, I will probably have a, a beer or a glass of Lombrusco, which a friend recently hooked my wife and I on to. Uh, so we've been enjoying the bubbly there. Oh, that that's very cool. So what kind of beer do you, uh, do you typically gravitate towards? You know, I, I have been admittedly one of those, those, IPA drinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I know that we've been sort of taking over the um, craft brewery scene, but um, I do love a really good IPA. Um, my wife got me into Pilsners mm-hmm. specifically. Um, we're kind of lucky in New York here because you can go down to the street to any of the corner stores, which we call bodegas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For those that don't know. Uh, and they have such amazing selections of beer everywhere. Um, so we kind of, we've, we're kind of going through all the choices right now. That's great. Yeah. I am, I'm not really a beer drinker, but I, uh, I mean, I, I did many, many years ago, I used to drink beer and, uh, I kind of feel like it's too bad that that's not my beverage of choice these days because there are so many options compared to, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and I do know a lot of people who, uh, who favor a good IPA. So, uh, so that's great. And I'm not actually familiar with Lambrusco. I, I know the, the term, but I don't really know what that is. So, uh, so what is that? Uh, as much as I know is it's an Italian bubbly red and, um, they just tend to be really light and effervescent and, uh, they, they cut a little bit and aren't too sweet it's just a really refreshing drink, and and this summer we've been gravitating towards that as opposed to, you know, a rosé or mm-hmm. or a cold wine or red. That's great. I am I am going to look for one of those the next time I uh, I hit total wine because my wife loves champagne, 
and I favor red wine. And so maybe we'll find something that we can both drink together. <laughs> <laughs> you might bridge the divide there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear about that. I was, uh, uh, that is one type of uh, adult beverage I was unfamiliar with. Uh, so, well, that's great. I completely understand the need for tea. Uh, kids often enter into what people are having to drink or not having to drink, uh, as does work. I talk to a lot of narrators who uh, are working late sometimes, and they say, well, you know, uh, I really can't because I have some work to do, and I don't think it would come out very good if uh, I had a drink right now. So I completely understand that. That's true. And even with the dehydration that can occur after having a drink, it's really tough on narrators. They have mm -hmm. to take such good care of their instruments. Yep. Um, I always recommend if they're going to have a drink the night before a session to please follow it up with, you know, several glasses of water. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that many times. Uh, well, I am not having tea tonight. I'm actually uh, branching out a little bit. Uh, something I don't have too often is Irish whiskey. Uh, I, I like scotch and, uh, and I, and I like rye and bourbon's okay. Uh, and I don't really hit Irish whiskey too often, but, uh, for some reason today, every once in a while, I just get in the mood for something different. And so I'm having my favorite Irish whiskey at the moment, which is, uh, writer's tears. When I, when I saw that name, I thought, Hey, as somebody who deals with books all the time, I think that sounds like a great name. And it tur <laughs> turned out that I actually liked it too. So, uh, I'm just having a, a wee bit of the Irish tonight. So, uh. That is a very dramatic name for a whiskey. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, and, and so, you know, drama as well. Another, another good point. So, uh, so anyway, I hope that the tea is good. I, I already know that the, uh, the Irish whiskey is good since I've had it before, but, uh, but Tommy, thanks a lot for coming in tonight. Cheers. Certainly. Cheers to you. All right. So, uh, so you mentioned New York and I know that you're out there now and know that that's where most of the, the big publishers are. Uh, where are you from originally? Originally from Columbia, Maryland, which is a suburb sort of between Baltimore and D.C. So not too far away. Not too far away, yeah. Yeah, you grew uh, up in that area. Did you go to school there? I grew up, I grew up there from, from birth to uh, 18. Uh, great place to grow up. Really diverse and awesome, awesome public schools. Um, and they also had really developed open spaces where you could play and hike. It was a really great place to grow up um, and still is. Uh, and then from there shipped off to the university of Miami for my undergraduate degree. Well, that's a little bit farther afield. Yes. <laughs> and what did you do it there? What would you do there for, uh, for undergrad? I was drawn initially, um, into the music engineering program, which is a really outstanding program there. Um, and I played bass guitar since I think the age of 12 or so. Um, and so I went into their music school, um, and their engineering program, their music engineering program was really research and design heavy. They did have quite a bit of studio time that you could, uh, that you could take advantage of. But, um, in the end, I always wanted to be a producer and found that most of my sort of idols came usually from a, like a performance background. Mm -hmm. Um, so I quickly switched actually after the first semester into the studio music and jazz program, which is also stellar there and, uh, and finished out the rest of my degree from there, uh, on the bass guitar. So, uh, so just to take a little side trip down there, cause I, I love hearing a good bass guitar. Who were some of your, uh, bass player heroes? There are so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
You know, somebody that I listened to a lot, thanks to my uh, my bass teacher growing up, was James Jamerson, who was the main recording bass player for decades of of Motown material. Uh-huh. And he came at the bass um, having been an upright bass player, but played bass guitar later on and just had this beautifully melodic and flowing conceptual uh, playing style that was that was really just gorgeous and outstanding and drove so many of those tunes along with the uh, with the drums. That's, um, that's so what I love about a good bass player is that uh, you think about it as just underneath, but when somebody can actually you know bring it up to the level of you can actually follow it and 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 hear great things. Uh, that that's what I love about a good bass. Oh, absolutely. And I, I was super into the the funk and R&B scene, whether it was – it actually tended to be a lot of the San Francisco Bay stuff, um, Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yeah. So – and then uh, Rocco Prestia from Tower Power was another favorite. Um, we actually had a Tower Power ensemble that we started at, at the University of Miami that was such a blast to play. Oh, wow, like a uh, tribute band kind of thing? Exactly. It was just a themed band where we played – uh, mostly tower power music and I think a couple of earth, wind and fire tracks. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a blast, but, um, a lot of that San Francisco Bay funk and, um, George Porter from the meters, which is, uh, like a New Orleans funk band. Um, really groovy stuff. That's cool. That's, uh, that's great that you were able to kind of shift into something that, that you were really, uh, that you'd been into for a long time. So the, the music engineering and you wanted to be a producer. So I assume that there was a lot of, uh, or there was at least some aspect of recording, uh, in, in that type of program. Most definitely. Um, even having switched out of the music engineering program into the studio music and jazz, uh, you know, the, the advent of home recording hadn't quite uh, come about, but, um, there were sort of, it was sort of budding at that time. I actually remember making a friend's record. He was a a folk guitar player, uh, in that program. And we made a a record very clumsily during a hurricane. We We were locked down during a hurricane in our first semester. And I remember, you know, playing bass on a few of his tracks while they recorded guitars and everything else just in his dorm room. Hmm. Um, really quite, quite amazing considering the technology we had then. Yeah. So, uh, so speaking of the technology, what were you using back then to record? Oh, he just had a, uh, I, you know, it was probably a pretty souped up PC for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, a, I couldn't even tell you probably some sort of sound blaster sound card. Uh, yeah. And I remember those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember the software, but it was something very elementary. Yeah. Uh, but uh, amazing that we were able to accomplish accomplish that for, for what was available to uh, the home recordist at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, you know, at every step along the way with any technology, you look at it and go, this is fantastic. And then 10 years later and you go, I can't believe I used that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that that's very cool. So then, how did you get into um, the publishing world? Uh, you know, when I moved to New York after playing with a, a band and touring uh, a bit up and down the East Coast. Oh, you were touring. Uh, yeah, I I was in a band. Uh, we after school, uh, a handful of us moved up to Connecticut. We had a sort of a seven piece 
funk R&B band uh, with horns and everything. And, and we nice. would put ourselves up and down. We moved to Connecticut and we, we toured ourselves up and down the East Coast from Vermont down to, uh, down to Miami. Uh, so did that for a couple of years and then moved to New York and learn, learn how difficult the touring lifestyle is. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I, I still continue to do it in New York with, with different bands, but, um, wanted to sort of exercise that bug of being in a studio. So I got a job as a recording engineer at a project studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Mm. uh, called symmetry sound at the time and worked for about a year and a half until that happened to close. Um, just working with local bands in the scene. Um, after which I believe it or not answered a Craigslist ad for audiobook engineering with talking books, which is the commercial audiobook division of American Federation for the blind. Wow. That's uh, yeah, I've heard of talking books. So, uh, so yeah, Craigslist ad, uh, going from, uh, studio recording that, that is, well, I can see, you know, if they're closing down, you're looking any place to find out uh, where you can find something. So that's very cool. So you stayed kind of on the engineering track at that point. Exactly. Still playing with bands in my spare time, but uh, but just to make ends meet, to make rent money, um, started with the with the security of having somewhat of a day job. Um, and from you know maybe after six or eight months at uh, at uh, Talking Books. Um, my now former supervisor, uh, Michelle McGonagall de Young pulled me over to Hachette audio. Ah, or, Hachette. Yeah. There's a name. Yeah, exactly. So I spent a good, a good 12 years with Hachette. Um, I started out as an engineer, helped them wire and equip their first studio, uh, then moved on up to being a, a studio manager and, and, or, and producer, and when they moved to their current address, we built three more studios. Mm. Um, so I got the bug for for building and and uh, while I wasn't doing any of the contract work, just the the planning was was really educational. And then shortly, well, not shortly after several years, moved to uh, moved here to HMH. All right, so so that is quite a while twelve years with uh, with Hachette. I'm sure you saw a lot of things. Uh, going on in that amount of time. It was an amazing place to ride the curve, you know, ride the wave of the audiobook boom. Yeah. Um, so have you seen what what what's your impression of how you've seen the industry change? It changed drastically uh, from from when I started. I we couldn't have been doing uh, you know, we were not doing that many titles when I when I first came on board there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end it, it had multiplied several times over. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And that's a large, you know, obviously a very large publisher, um, lots of intellectual property, lots of opportunity to create audiobooks there. So we did quite a few. Yeah, that's great. And so, uh, so then it was only just in February that you started with, uh, HMH. I I have to tell people I'm having a hard time with the name because we have a, a street here in Tucson which is spelled the same as the first word of your company, H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. And, and everybody that I know pronounces it Houghton. And then I learned at one point that apparently that's incorrect because the guy that it was named after uh, uh, 
pronounced his name Hooten. And you're telling me that the way to pronounce it is Houghton. And so I, I think I'm just going to stick with HMH. <laughs> Good idea. It's but, a lot easier. Yeah. But then, so you started with HMH uh, just in February when they were just starting with the audio division. Is that right? Exactly. I came in uh, on ground at ground zero. We built our recording studio in-house. Uh, we hired uh, a team of two people, a really amazing audio coordinator, Carly Katz, and uh, a great uh, audio engineer, Sam Palumbo. Um, and from there, we've we've built everything up from from scratch. Now, did HMH used to do audiobooks but outsource everything and they decided to open up their own division or have they not really been in the audiobook world at all? I know that HMH um, is somewhat focused on education or maybe uh, very focused on education. Um, and I know that in that world, um, audiobooks are less um, less prevalent than they are just in, in the general population. Um, so how did they, how did they deal with audio before or did they? Well, with the trade division, which is the component of HMH that I work for, uh, they moved from a licensing model to now producing things in house. Ah, so they would license a title and then somebody else would produce it completely. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so now they're basically taking hold of the reins and saying, we're going to put out our own audiobooks and um, collect on them and just do, do it here. Absolutely. It's, it gives you an opportunity to have more creative input into how your, your intellectual property is you know, used. And it, you become a much more full-service publisher to all of your authors. Sure. Yeah. So is, uh, is, is the audiobook work that you're doing so far, I know that I'm sure that after only six or eight months, you're still ramping up, but within that time frame, I'm sure that you've had time to see how things are going. Is most of the audiobook work that you're doing in the education portion of what HMH produces, or is it kind of all over the map or someplace else? No, the only work I'm doing is actually on our, our trade divisions work. So the general interest lifestyle and some of the young readers and young adult titles. So it's all, it's all fiction, nonfiction. It, it actually has nothing to do with the educational wing. And is that because there isn't much of a market for the educational material or just because that's kind of what you're doing right now to see how it goes? Well, I, I, to be honest, I'm not completely familiar with the audio component in the educational realm. And that is kind of a different division of the company. Okay. Um, well, that's great. So, so where do you see the, the division going? I mean, what's the, what are your, your short-term and, and long-term plans? Uh, I know that the audiobook world is just continues to explode. Um, I think it's double digit growth for the past either five or seven years. I saw an article recently. So, uh, so, you know, clearly now is still as of right now, a good time to, uh, to get on board. What do you see happening in, in the next few years? Well, right now on the on the short term, we're continuing to refine our production process, and you know just become an even more cohesive team. Although, uh, thankfully, we are running pretty well. We we just released our first, I think, ten or eleven titles on September third. So, we spent the majority of of the summer and the spring uh, ramping up production to release for this fall. That's great. Uh, and so you said 10 or 12 just recently, and those were the first ones? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we 
we did some front list and quite a bit of back list. So either titles that hadn't yet been recorded or titles that um, their licenses had reverted back to us. Got it. Uh, and, and so the, the backlist stuff, how did you decide who, who was it that decided let's do this book? Well, I, I think it was approached, it was approached by several people in editorial as to what would make the most sense to, to start our first list with. Um, one of them being, uh, everything is illuminated by Jonathan, Jonathan Safran Foer, uh, which is, which turned out beautifully. Um, we were very excited to redo that one. Um, and I, I think we're just approaching it from the point of view of what's reverting and, and what can we do with it? That's different than we did before or that yeah. was done before. And, and you also mentioned young adult. I know that uh, young adult is big. And in fact, I've talked to a, a several narrators who love doing young adult stuff. So is that uh, a plan to, to keep doing a lot of that? Yeah, we're, we're slowly ramping that, ramping that up. Um, taking our time with it just to see, you know, we, we obviously need to get more data as we release, uh, into the fall and into the next spring. Um, but we are, we are planning on continuing with young adult and young readers because you never know what might pop out of there. Sure. Yeah. And I know that every once in a while you get, you know, huge hits that, uh, nobody would have necessarily expected from a particular genre. Not to mention, it's just really fun material. Yeah, that's what I hear from narrators. And I, I have not done any young adult. Um, unfortunately, with my voice, uh, it's probably unlikely that I'll that I'll do much, if any, over the course of my audiobook career. And that's okay. But I have heard from uh, so many narrators that they absolutely love young adult because the material is just so much fun. It's very engaging. It's very engaging. It's it's and I think everybody enjoys telling a story and, and to be able to relate it to kids mm -hmm. can't go wrong. Yeah. So, uh, so walk me through, uh, uh, the process of, uh, maybe on one of those, those first books that you did, how you put everything together, what, uh, who was involved and, uh, and how did it, how did it all come together at the end? Sure. Well, from the very beginning, one of the first books that I think I got a chance to do was, uh, Tim O'Brien's memoir, dad's maybe book which is really, really exquisite. Um, since we didn't have a studio here yet, and because he lives in Austin, uh, I sourced a studio in Austin, Texas, and directed him over a phone patch Oh, cool! for, for several days. So we, we sourced the studio near him, uh, recorded for, I would say, about a week and a half, and um, from there had it edited by uh, one of the stellar audio editors that I have the, uh, wonderful opportunity to work with. And, um, yeah, it goes through post-production and QC. And, uh, we did some, we did a handful of pickups to make sure the audiobook was sounding excellent and as word perfect as possible. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we, that was actually, it's not even coming out until October. Uh, we still have another three or four weeks before it publishes, but, um, that was, we were very fortunate to get that done early and that so, was a great experience. So you mentioned the editors that you work with. So is that something that you outsource? You don't have somebody in-house doing that yet? Uh, correct. We usually outsource that. Um, occasionally our audio engineer, Sam will, uh, will do some editing and uh, once in a while I'll do some as well. It just depends on what our time constraints might be. Got it. And, uh, and I'm sure that you have several on speed dial that you can talk to and say, we got this book, we got to get done. 
Indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. So what about something that's not narrated by the author? Uh, I assume that in some of those books that the first batch that you had there, you, you had a narrator um, that was not the author. Is that uh, something where you just went with names that you knew from your experience at Hachette? Or do you have a roster? Do, are you looking for narrators? Sure. I'm always looking for, for new narrators uh, or narrators that I haven't worked with in the past. In the case of Everything is Illuminated, here at HMH Audio, we get auditions for our authors to choose from. And so in this case, we picked uh, or, or Jonathan picked Robert Petkoff for that for that title um and because we didn't have our in-house studio yet built we recorded across town and uh over the course of a week and then the production process follows suit just like an author record sure yeah um interesting so uh so you you have auditions that you have the author listen to has that been the case with all of them uh, with our audiobooks, so uh, far, yeah, yeah, I believe so. So I, I find that really interesting, and I, and it's not terribly surprising, just because uh, other people that I've talked to at the at some of the big publishers have said that they work pretty closely with authors. I'm curious about your experience since you were at Hachette for quite some time, whether or not that has changed, um, because I know that in some creative circles, uh, sometimes it's considered. A mistake to actually have uh, an author or a screenwriter or somebody who was involved initially actually get involved with the production of the final product. And so I'm curious as to whether or not you've seen that change or whether in the whole time you've been working with audiobooks, the companies that you've been with have always worked very closely with the authors. I would say that that authors would like to be involved a little bit more. Uh, and that's been the trend because audio has been such a, a, you know, an expanding market that authors are more interested nowadays in who's representing their work, um, who's, who's helping to tell their story. So I would say it's just become more common to get authors and, and editors involved in the process. Um, that, yeah, again, that doesn't surprise me too much because it, it certainly has seemed that way from the people that I've spoken with, that that's happening more and more. Did you have any without mentioning any names, did you have any negative experiences dealing with authors who maybe wanted to get a little more involved in the process than you wanted them to? No, I haven't really. Um, That's good. I, I think you're always trying to connect the dots, you know, so however an author might want to hear something read or representative represented, um, it might take some, some decoding to get there, mm -hmm. but it, it's never been an unhappy process. It's just a matter of problem solving, which is kind of the, the great part about being a producer in general is that it's about making things happen, solving problems or, or, you know, getting ahead of issues before they might pop up. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there weren't any, um, any bad experiences. I mean, I, I hear about online occasionally, when narrators are dealing directly with authors through ACX or, you know, other, other ways to go about getting an audiobook done, um, there are times when it can be um, difficult um, because, because they're, they're very interested 
in having something sound just like it was in their head, which of course is virtually impossible. Um, so, so it can be problematic, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that in the situations that you've dealt with where you're dealing directly with authors, it's actually been uh, very beneficial. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think this is a collaborative endeavor. So you have to go into it knowing that everybody has some expectations mm -hmm. and you have to do your best to manage that. Um, you have to, you have to come to a compromise and, and make sure that, that the work is represented as best as possible for all the parties involved. Cause that, that's inevitably what everybody wants. We want the best product so that everybody is happy and from the author to the narrator, to the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's good. Good to hear. Um, so do you see continued growth in the, in the brand new division that you have there at, at HMH? Um, do you have plans for more studios or more books? And, and in fact, uh, how many books are you at this point planning on putting out every year? So right now we're looking at about 90 to a hundred from this September to the end of next August. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know how much that will change. It really depends on how much we acquire on the print side. I'm hoping that as we go along and have, uh, just some more, some more time and resources that we can expand into some audio originals and potentially podcasts. But, um, at the moment, I think we're just concentrating on, Streaming, streamlining our production process and making sure that we're efficiently and effectively publishing our audiobooks, our front list. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you, you've mentioned the studio and that you didn't have it built right at first. You have the in-house studio built now, right? Correct. Yeah, we've been running for about two months. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and do you have any plans right now for another studio? At the moment, no. Space-wise, we, we probably have it, but, um, I think we're we're at we're not quite yet at capacity with our current recording studio. Right. So it'll depend on how much uh, how much uh, the division takes off. Yes, of course, and and you know between author records and and depending on where talent may reside, we're still going to be recording remotely uh, in other places in the country. Have you, has, have, for any of the uh, initial books that, that you have done and that just got released, were any of those home record? No, none of them were home records as of yet. But that's uh, on the table? Yeah, um, I'm not against home recording. It depends on who the narrator is. And the difficulty with home, home records is that it puts so much pressure on the narrator because they have to wear so many hats. Mm -hmm. Um we always prefer to have three people on every recording session, a narrator, a recording engineer, and a director. Um, home records kind of take, take that out of the equation. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just feel like it puts so much pressure on the, on the talent to do that. Definitely. I, I feel that all the time. Um, and yet I, I'm, I'm really comfortable with the technology aspect. I know that there are a lot of newer narrators, well, not necessarily newer, but there are a lot of narrators where technology is not the strong suit. Whereas, you know, I did IT for 20 years. And so to me, tech, the technology is almost trivial. Um, but to a lot of people, it's not, it's absolutely not, uh, especially learning something new. So I know that being in a situation where you actually have a director and an engineer, so you don't have to worry about the tech at all is a real plus. 
Absolutely. And, and not only the t- technology part of it, but again, it goes back to that sort of collaborative endeavor. Uh, I don't necessarily want directors interrupting talent and trying to redirect what they're doing all the time, but it's great to have somebody to perform to and to, uh, to be there if you just need a hand, if you just if there's something that's confusing to help move momentum along, to help you reset, mm-hmm. uh, a director is just an, another asset to me. Yeah. There have been, there have been several times where I'll, I'll get a sentence and I go, well, you know, I, I know what this author is saying and trying to convey, but these words, I'm, I, I don't think I'm getting it. It would have been so nice to have somebody else there instead of having to sit there for 10 minutes, reading it 50 different ways, you know, would have been so Absolutely. much nicer to have a director to bounce it off of and say, how do I, I mean, I know what he's saying. How, how do I put this? How do I stress, you know, which word do I stress to make this make sense? So I, I definitely get that. Most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. Well, uh, well, that's great. It sounds like the, uh, the new audio division at HMH is definitely, uh, off and running and, uh, and that, uh, things are going well. Yeah, so far so good. We're having a great time. Uh, I'm getting to work on some just amazing material uh, with some wonderful, wonderful authors and narrators. So I feel very fortunate. Very cool. So what do you do when you're not uh, working at what is essentially a startup? I mean, you're, you're certainly the, the publishing company has been around for 200 years, but when it's a brand new division and you're in charge, I'm sure that takes up a fair amount of time. Uh, what do you do when you're not doing that? It's true. This this has been a, a very entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, when when I'm not here, I'm spending as much time as I can with my wife and son, um, and I still get to make some music here and there. In fact, uh, just before and after my son was born, I was able to uh, complete a record with a writing partner of mine. Oh wow! So we we had a great time writing music for a couple of years and and really tightened up our, our writing process and were able to, uh, to, I think we wrote about eight or nine finished songs. Well, that's uh, great. So put a plug yeah. in. What's the, what's the name of the album? Oh, okay. Well, the, the album's not quite released yet, but we do have a single out. Uh, the band's called Ondas Ondas, O-N-D-A-S, O-N-D-A-S. Okay. Uh, and one of the songs out is now is called Butterfly. Uh, and we were able to actually get it placed in a Netflix show, which was quite a blast oh that's fantastic which um, show you know let me look that up because i'm not sure <laughs> um well that that is fantastic and are you still playing uh locally like live gigs occasionally i'll i'll get a live gig here and there um but you know it it takes so much to rehearse and you know yeah, there's no, just there's just so much involved in in live music that it's it's tough to fit all of that in. I I did actually play one gig over the summer with one of my old bands, Great Elk. Um, most people had sort of dispersed uh, and had kids and gotten married, mm-hmm. and uh, we all sort of reconvened over the summer and played a, a show at, at Rockwood Music Hall, which is a really wonderful venue in the city, uh, which was a blast. And thankfully, you know, it didn't involve that much preparation. Most of the songs were still in the muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that did qu- take quite a bit. It, it does. I'm sure that it's a, it, it's a business. Um, I mean, even if you're just a, you know, starving college kid, 
you you have to take a lot of time to do all of the admin stuff that you have to do with any business. I, I had a friend back when I was learning how to play the guitar who um, he, he gigged and you have to talk to the owners of the bar and you have to uh, make sure that you get enough friends to come so that they want to have you back. And, and there's all these things that you have to uh, to take care of as a business, even if you're not thinking of it as a business. I just want to play music, but it's a business. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot, there's a lot involved. There's yeah. a lot involved. And, and all you really, like you said, there, all you really want to do is play music. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot, a lot to be done promotion wise and, and to make sure you're getting paid and paying your musicians. If you happen to be uh, an independent singer songwriter, it's a, it's a, it's certainly a crash course in music business. Yeah. And that's definitely the case with voiceover as well, including audiobooks. no matter what the genre. I, I think that the, I know that this happened to me when I first started in voiceover, uh, you know, take 1.0, um, not recognizing it as a business is a huge, huge mistake. Um, you've, you've got to, sure. What you want to do is you want to record, you want to be behind the microphone, you want to make the characters, you want to do whatever it is that, that you like doing when it comes to performance. But if you don't treat it as a business, you got no performances coming in. <laughs> Certainly. And, and just learning to be a professional, which if yep. you're just starting out, you know, I can say it just starting out the, in the music industry, I did not always act very professional. <laughs> I also just didn't have much of a concept of it. So, right. it, you know, learning to write emails and answer phone calls and, and do all the right things is, it's a journey. Yeah, definitely. So what's the, uh, what's the Netflix show? Uh, so the Netflix show is uh, called Special by Ryan O'Connell. Special. All right. I'll, uh, I'll look for it. That's, uh, that's great. I, I don't think that I have had anybody here in the speakeasy who, in addition to doing audiobooks, was a musician and actually had some of their their music out there. I could be wrong. There are a couple of people who come to mind, but um, but oh, yeah. uh, but that's great. I'll I'll definitely look for that. There have definitely yeah. I've definitely had some some chats here with people who were into music and who did play uh, various different instruments. But uh, but that's fantastic. I'll definitely look that up. Yeah, Great Elk had a couple of of placements as well. I think in a show called Arrow. And in a show called 13 Reasons Why as well. So it, it, it's Great a lot help. of fun. Okay. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll look them up too. Yeah, it's just sort of a, a side way that independent musicians can make income. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And you said you, uh, you spend time with your uh, your family. Are, are you living right in the city or uh, right outside? We both live in, uh, or we all live in, in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. In, so uh, in, in one of the five boroughs. Exactly. So you can call it New York City. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. That's great. Well, so uh, so in your not just at HMH, but being at, uh, you know, 12 years at Hachette, I'm sure that you've seen a lot of uh, narration happening. What uh, what words of wisdom would you have for aspiring narrators out there? Prepare, prepare, prepare your scripts. Um, similar to getting ready, I guess, for a theatrical production. Uh, I think it's just so important to be intimately familiar with the book that you're about to narrate. And obviously you, you can't, um, you can't spend a, a ton of time rereading a manuscript. Um, but just so that while you're narrating, you can be in that moment, you can be performing it rather than sometimes it comes off very red. Mm -hmm. If you understand what I'm saying, you know, sure, I mean? yeah. yeah. So I would say that that's the biggest component of, of being a narrator, you know, that's, the onus on the narrator is really in preparation so that you can really bring this work to life. Yeah, I, I hear that. There have been um, 
there have been a couple of times I, I hear what you're saying about the fact that you can't really reread the manuscript. I swear there have been a couple of times where I felt like, damn, if I only had the time, I would read this like three times instead of one so that I could actually be totally prepared for all the things that happen. Because, yeah, when I hit them, I'll, I'll remember them. But wouldn't it be better to be that much more prepared? And of course, that's that's just not really feasible. Um given it generally it's not really feasible given the amount of time that you have to to work for uh, prepare something but but i totally hear that yeah certainly well that's you know that is where the benefit when you have you know when you have a director in a session it, it always helps because you can have that that second or third pair of ears to give you a little bit of insight as to how you might be able to do something a little bit better it's always nice you know fortunately a lot of times editors and qc people will also give their their insights um but yeah, collaboration makes the better book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear that. Um, have you had any experiences where you're going through the production of a book and it's just really painful? Things things go wrong and um, the narrator's not prepared and, uh, you know, anything else? Oh, certainly. I think I think you can only ever be so prepared. And there, there have been some narrators in the past who have been less prepared than others. Mm-hmm. Um you know, pronunciations always seem to be the one thing that gets people. Uh, but most of the time, we're able to give scripts to people well enough in advance that they can prepare a list. If they're unable to look something up, at least we can get some insight from the editor and author ahead of the ahead of the session. Yeah, no, that, I'm sure that that's always helpful. So most definitely, most definitely. Yeah. Well, that's great, Tommy. This has been fantastic. Uh, anything else that that has come to mind that you're thinking about with your uh, your division there of HMH Audio? Not really. Uh, right now, we're just happy to be running and looking forward to the next book. Yeah. Congratulations. It sounds like it's going really well. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Where, where can people find you if they want to look you up online? And um, okay. is there anything, do you have any process if somebody wants to get a hold of you and say, hey, I'm a narrator, I'd love to work with you, or uh, would you rather not deal with that right now? You know, at the moment, uh, we're mainly taking submissions from from people uh, through agents, but, um, people can always find me on LinkedIn. Okay. All right. Um, that's interesting that you say that because most of the people that I've spoken with, um, have a really hard time finding an agent who's interested in representing them for audiobooks. Is that becoming more common in your experience? You know, I, it, uh, I haven't noticed it. I do work with narrators, some of which are have representation and some don't. Um, and I haven't noticed a trend of, of people having difficulty or, or not. Uh, nobody's really necessarily brought it up to me, I guess. Okay. All right. It's a, it, it's an interesting topic that comes up every once in a while with, um, narrators, especially newer narrators asking about finding an agent. And typically it's, yeah, most agents, uh, are not interested because there's not that much in it for them as opposed to like commercial narration or something like that. So I see what um, you're saying. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. I'll, uh, I'll have to check in with a few agents about that and, um, see if there's, uh, somebody that I can speak with who would have, um, more experience with that. So thanks for the, uh, for making me think of that. I'll, I'll, uh, look a few people up. Absolutely. And, and again, if anybody wants to get in contact, uh, LinkedIn is a great place to do so. 
Okay. Yeah, that's great. I've actually just recently gotten back onto LinkedIn. I've had an account for, I don't know, a dozen years, but really hadn't hadn't made use of it. And I am finding a lot of people on there in the audiobook world. And uh, I'm hoping that it is a better platform to connect with people on professionally than uh, Facebook. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to that sort of using, you know, narration as a platform, uh, as a business platform, not only just being an artist, but knowing that you need to follow up on all of your business. Um, LinkedIn is a kind of a nice way to do so because it really makes you focus in on not the social aspect of what you do like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, mm-hmm. but, but this is a place for professionals and this is how to connect. Yeah, no, that's, that's good to hear. I'm, uh, I'm going to continue to pursue that and see how things go in the next six months or a year. Sometimes these things take a while. Yeah, certainly. We've all got, a, we've all got our hands in many cookie jars. Exactly. Yeah. Too many social, social media cookie jars are out there these days. <laughs> Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, this is great, Tommy. Thank you so much for coming into the speakeasy. I hope the tea was good and that, uh, and that it helps you, uh, stay focused when you've got to deal with the one and a half year old later. My, uh, my writer's tears, Irish whiskey was as good as the last time. So, uh, I'm definitely a, a big fan of this one for the Irish. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, it was a pleasure to be here and I, I thank you for having me on. All right. Thanks, Tommy. Cheers. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Tommy Heron for stopping in. I really enjoyed hearing about the new audio division at HMH and I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge. They're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the audiobook speakeasy. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated as it helps me keep the lights on here in the Speakeasy. Special shout out this week to Rebecca Nemethy, the Speakeasy's latest patron. Thanks, Rebecca. I'm very grateful for the support. Until we see you here in the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers. (laughs) 